the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who enjoys fighting dragons in his spare time because he loves the smell of fire, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode with Castle, Big Bang Theory, and Fringe now done for the season, we will be reviewing the season finales for Once Upon a Time, Bones, Person of Interest, and Supernatural. We're also going to be giving you our favorite comedic moments from the new Modern Family and the season finale for Community made up of a whopping three episodes. But before we get into all of that, we have news with Nico. The major networks have released their fall schedules along with trailers for the new shows to get everyone excited about next season. You can check out all the new fall schedules and watch the promos for all the new shows on our Facebook and Google Plus pages. Very nice. NBC moves community to Fridays. May lose showrunner and Chevy Chase. Oh boy. While many fans may think that moving to the dreaded Friday night is horrible, and for any other show, I'd agree, but Community has its diehard fans that will follow it to the ends of the earth and will help out NBC's other Friday night star, Grimm. So all in all, this is actually a good thing for Community. Yeah. However, there are all kinds of rumors circulating that showrunner Dan Harmon will not be back for next season, and now the question arises, will Chevy Chase stay on if Dan Harmon leaves? The two have had a not-so-private spat of late on the creative direction of the show, and many believe that Chevy Chase was on his way out because of it. But now that Harmon may be gone, will Chevy Chase remain? Hopefully we'll have a better idea after this week's 90-minute season finale extravaganza. And I'll keep you guys up to date as new things come out for this topic. That'll be unfortunate if Dan Harmon leaves, because he's kind of the heart of the show. I mean, he essentially created it, right? Yeah, he was. he is the named creator. So I, I guess if the creator leaves, you're essentially not going to have the same show, but it may work out. Who knows? Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to question it yet. I'm going to give it at least a couple episodes yeah. under the new direction before I'm, I'm too worried. Okay. The Amazing Spider-Man has released a four-minute action-packed preview. Which is awesome. The upcoming reboot of the wall-crawling franchise, The Amazing Spider-Man, has released a four-minute preview trailer showcasing much of the film's intense action sequences. While we've known for some time that director Mark Webb's big-budget blockbuster debut would be using Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker slash Spider-Man in a more pathos-centric way, focusing on the mystery of Peter's parents and his relationship with friend nemesis Dr. Kurt Connors slash The Lizard, this preview drives home the point even more. Will this film manage to swing from outside the shadow made by the still-recent Spider-Man films by Sam Raimi? We will certainly find out when it clings to theaters on July 3rd. In the meantime, check out the new preview on our Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus pages. I think this is going to be a great movie, and it's going to take the Spider-Man franchise in a new, real, fresh direction. So I'm excited to see what this movie has to throw at us. 
Yeah, and I think it's going to revive Spider-Man after such a dismal third movie that most people did not like. And I think it's going to revive the whole franchise, just like you said, Dan, and, and take it in a new direction that a lot of new people can get into Spider-Man again. Yeah, and it's going to be a little more serious, but also relatable to audiences. So I'm excited to see what they throw at us. Would you compare it to the Dark Knight series or the Jonathan Nolan taking Batman under its helm and kind of going more serious? Yes, and I also consider it as it's tackling a different era of Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, this is the more modern Spider-Man where Raimi's take was the Spider-Man, the early Stan Lee of the 1960s. Okay. And that worked to a certain extent, but when they brought in modern villains like Venom, it didn't work so hot. Yeah, great. Saturday Night Live, looking back at the digital short era, is it over? This past Saturday, during the Will Ferrell-hosted installment of Saturday Night Live, the 100th digital short was aired. Also, when you factor in the very heavy rumors that Andy Samberg is leaving SNL after the season finale this weekend, it may also have been the very last digital short. The digital short era began in 2005 when Andy Samberg joined the cast as a featured player and Jorma Tacone and Akiva Schaefer were hired as writers. Now that the digital short era has possibly ended, what does it all mean? And where does this leave the future of SNL? You may be asking yourself, why do I even think this is important? Well, I think these digital shorts have been crucial in keeping SNL in the cultural consciousness. Without them, would the show have continued? Absolutely. Would it have been as vital as it has been? Absolutely not. This makes me wonder about the show's future, since a future without digital shorts seems like a risk at this point. Then again, SNL has caught up with technology in a way that it may not need these short films as much as they did when they debuted. Put it this way, I didn't think many non-geek people knew that YouTube even existed before the first digital sketch, Lazy Sunday, made YouTube famous. I mean, that was 2005. YouTube had been around for a little while, but it wasn't in everybody's everyday lexicon. Right. How many people started watching SNL again after Lazy Sunday broke out on YouTube? And more importantly, how much more was the show written about in the immediate aftermath? I can tell you that I started paying attention to SNL again because of these shorts, and now that Sandberg is leaving, I just don't see myself caring about the show once again. Just my two cents as we see the end of an era. Well, that show is like a roller coaster because it has its real high up periods and has its major downs. Yes. So, and this is just another low point maybe for the show. Or maybe a raising point. Maybe they bring a new blood, get it works out. But in my opinion, I feel like the digital shorts are almost like one of those lasting, everlasting sketches, like the weekend update, which they continue to do even after the originators of that sketch left. So the digital short may continue because of that. Yeah, I've got to say, though, that Lazy Sunday was one of the best things yeah. I've ever seen on SNL throughout the whole ages. And I just watched it again today as I was writing this, and oh. It was it yeah. was so great. <laughs> it is great. I it's it's hard for me to say that's better than some of the classics though. I don't know. I just really like the music <laughs> video stuff. Yeah, it's great stuff. Really well done. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yeah. Good stuff, Nico. A lot of stuff to be excited and ponder about. So here's to Spider Man being awesome. And also, real quick, we got a voicemail from our good friend Elisa Lee, and she really just gave us some positive encouragement for us to just keep doing what we're doing and that she's really enjoying the show. And then there are other people out there enjoying it too. So we appreciate the encouragement from Elisa Lee. And she also had a question for us about the really well done NBC show Awake, if we were going to cover it. 
Hey guys, it's Elise Lee. I really don't have a question. Um, you guys, um, I just wanted to call in and let you know how uh, great the show is and appreciate all the hard work you guys do. Oh, you know what? Actually, I do have a question you can probably put on the air. I haven't heard you guys talk about the show Awake, and I don't know um, if it's something that you guys, I think you did once or twice, but um, it's a show that when I catch it, it's really a good show. And I was just wondering um, if you guys are going to include that in your lineup on a more regular basis. So there we go. There's a, there's a question you can put on uh, the air. And unfortunately, and I hate to say this to you, Lisa Lee, because I had all plans on watching this show, and Nico and I really were considering covering it on the fall. But I don't think we're going to do that because, unfortunately, NBC, I think, made the too soon decision to cancel the show. But unfortunately, with it being canceled, it's not worth covering because it's not irrelevant for us. Also, we're a little skeptical here on covering upcoming NBC shows because it's hard for us to find something to latch on to because we feel like they're going to yank the rug out right out from underneath us right away like they did with this show. Sorry, Nico, do you have anything more you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I loved Awake. I watched every episode from the very first first one, and I even wrote a little write-up on our website. So if you want to see why I, I love this show, go ahead and check out that article on the website, acrosstheairwaves.com, and just look for the Awake article. And really, Awake was a great show. It had an amazing premise that he's in, in a car crash and wakes up on one side, his son survived the crash, and on the other, his wife survived the crash, and he flip-flops between the two every time he goes to sleep. This is a brilliant idea that I thought would be better as a movie. They really found a good way to make it work in within the TV genre or in the TV format, and it was really a lot of fun. And you, it had really good actors, really good procedural formula every week and they solved either one crime in one side or two crimes one in each side every week and that was really cool that no show i had ever seen had tried to do something like that not even fringe where they go back and forth between the two realities did they solve two crimes in the single episode that i can remember at least so really awake was it was blazing a new trail and I thought NBC didn't give it the right, didn't give it a chance because they they started it in the middle of the spring season and really didn't give it a chance to get an audience. If they had started at the mid-season break and with all the mid-season premieres and had run for a full length, I think it would have caught on, it would have found an audience and it would have been renewed for the fall and we'd be covering it in the fall. Unfortunately, NBC kind of lost confidence in it for whatever reason pushed it to the middle of the, the schedule, and then put it on a Thursday night when there wasn't much support around it. So really, the network killed this show and then blamed it for its its failure to find an audience. And unfortunately, that's NBC's profile right now. And as Dan said, they're so volatile, we, we just can't see joining on or, or making one of their shows a, a keystone of our show here. So... Unfortunately, that, that network needs some major overhaul before we can find some confidence in it. Yeah. Well, with that, we're going to move on to talking about a show that's on a network that's far less volatile. The way things have come out, many of their shows are returning in the fall that aren't going to have a lot of issues. Got one of those shows that I think got a well-deserved renewal, especially after this episode, was Once Upon a Time. So let's talk about to this great show titled A Land Without Magic.
Regina and Emma share a common cause when they try to find a cure for Henry. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale world, Prince Charming tries to escape from the Queen's dungeon and save Snow, unaware that he's too late. This week's Once Upon a Time gave us what a fantasy adventure show should give us in its season finale. All out action. As Prince Charming took on a dragon in the fairy tale world to save Snow White, and Emma took on the same dragon in the real world to save Henry. Now, I know the CGI used to create the dragon wasn't something out of the Avengers movie, but I still felt it was impressive from a TV standpoint, because I can't think of a show that has used such a large, digitally animated creature before, and it really makes me excited about what Once Upon a Time could throw at us with a second season budget, especially after this season has been such a success. Also, Emma, now being fully aware that magic and the fairy tale world exist, will greatly improve her character, since I think her one-liners get reactions to aspects of the fairy tale world are just going to make Emma's adventures to protect the people of Storybrooke get Sheriff a ton of fun to watch on a weekly basis. Plus, even though Emma was once again portrayed in this episode as extremely gullible, with tossing up the egg to St. Henry to Mr. Gold, we are probably going to see much less of this sort of thing, with the bad guys now being able to use magic to get the upper hand on Emma, instead of the writers having to rely on the pitfall of Emma overlooking things that anyone with common sense would notice. However, I don't want to give you the idea that Emma is just some dumb blonde who really got on my nerves all season, because she's a character who I believe still has a lot of potential. And that comes from the relationship she has with her son Henry, which I thought was topped off really nicely from a season finale standpoint. Could the scene where Emma thought he was going to die, that gave him the magical kiss, which saved his life, did a moment that I think would make anyone's heart melt, especially with the episode airing on Mother's Day. On top of that, I loved when Mary Margaret was sitting in Henry's hospital room reading him the storybook. It was the smallest thing, but totally captured the experience the writers want you to have when watching this show, of having nostalgia for the bedtime stories or Disney movies we watched as kids. And I felt that this scene was a great way to invite us back next season by making us crave this nostalgia more. Although I think what's really going to entice viewers, such as myself, to the coming back next season, is everyone getting their memories of the fairy tale world back. Can magic be introduced to the real world? Personally, I got a little nervous that when the black smoke started coming out of the wishing well, everyone was going to get transported to the fairy tale world. Or worse yet, there was going to be a reset of the show, with everyone's memory being reset in a way that they wouldn't know who Henry and Emma were. But thankfully, they brought magic into the real world, which will probably be much more interesting. Then again, with this change in the show's dynamic, I'm a little worried that a few things which worked really well this season are going to be somewhat lost in the shuffle. First off, I liked the concept that was introduced by Dr. Hopper that came into play this week of Regina loving Henry to the point she would never intentionally try to hurt him. God, I'm worried that bringing magic into the game, especially by the expression she had at the end of the episode, will make her so evil again, this gray aspect of her character will be lost. Secondly, I'm a little concerned that bringing magic into the game, or the story developing a love interest for Emma, which I think needs to happen next season, will cause Henry's character to be pushed into the background. But I think this issue can be solved easily with Henry's possession of the storybook, making him almost a tactical expert who helps Emma deal with each week's magical threat. Also, I think Emma's relationship with Henry will end up working in tandem with her having a love interest, especially if it's August slash Pinocchio which still remains possible because I think magic entering the real world will bring him back to life, but he's going to be wood again, meaning that for Emma and August to have a romance that works, he's going to have to become a human again. 
Finally, with magic in the real world, there might not be a reason to have flashbacks to the fairy tale world anymore. But I think the writers could keep them going with an arc that shows how Snow White and Prince Charming took control of their kingdom, and introducing more fairy tale characters that will act as magical threats or allies that Emma will come across in the real world. Ultimately, despite these concerns, introducing magic into the real world is only going to make this show better, because it's going to become way more action-packed. Think like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or even Smallville to a certain extent. Yet we're probably going to start getting those cliffhangers, which are probably going to make us obsessed with tuning into the show every week. In addition, if the full-blown CGI dragon wasn't enough of an indicator, tune in next season, because I think we can expect big things to come from Once Upon a Time. So kudos to the writers on giving us a first season that did its job of keeping us wanting more. So with that, I pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this epic season finale for What's Pot of Time. Remember last week when I said we would get a Lost-like reset in the finale that would reset the world or curse? Well, that's exactly what happened. While it was not exactly the reset of the curse that I predicted, it did reset the world as all the fairy tale characters got their magic and their memories back. And I'm glad that it didn't do what I initially thought might happen where they reset everyone's memories to the moment the curse started and no one remembers Henry or Emma. Rather, I like that they gave the fairy tale characters their memories back, but also gave Regina her powers back so it would be somewhat of an even fight going forward. Right. Now the question presents itself, is magic only in Storybrooke, or has it spread across the Earth? Will the characters be able to leave Storybrooke and wreak havoc on the rest of the world, or will they still be confined to the Storybrooke location? I think these are some of the questions that no doubt will be addressed in Season 2 when it returns next fall, but they're things that we can start thinking about now. I would say think Sunnydale on Buffy concept. Okay. Like Hellmouth kind of thing. That's what I was considering, that things would be kind of centered still around Storybrooke. Right. How cool was it to see Maleficent? Emma goes after the beast with her father's sword, and the scenes are cut with Prince Charming fighting the dragon and hiding the true love potion in it in the fairy tale world. I loved this. Yes. I loved the visual parallel, and the fact they are father and daughter kind of gave it even more weight. Yeah. Speaking of Maleficent, she just happens to be my sister's favorite Disney villain of all time, okay. and and she and I just happened to be talking about her a few weeks ago, and she mentioned how much she loved the Sleeping Beauty story, and especially the Maleficent character, how scary she is, and how she was the most convincing evil villain in all of the Disney stories. It was great to then see Maleficent show up in the finale of Once Upon a Time to help Emma believe and break the curse. I don't fully understand how Maleficent was transported to Storybook in dragon form because it took magic to change her into a dragon, so you'd think she would have transformed back into her human self. Then again, Regina mentioned something about locking her that way. Regardless, that fight with Emma was great, especially on a TV budget. Oh, yeah. Because of Mr. Gold's treachery in stealing the egg from Emma while she's trapped in the elevator... Henry dies, but he returns to life with a kiss on the forehead from Emma. And I saw that coming. Obviously. Death didn't actually scare me because it seems so obvious that Emma would save his life with true love's kiss. I wasn't really worried we'd actually lose him. Still, I liked that the love of a mother for her son saved the day. Normally, when you think true love's kiss, you only think about romantic love like Snow and Charming. But this was a nice twist that really played well on Mother's Day. Yes. 
And the way the wave swept across Storybrook, waking everyone up, was well done. It made me happy to see Prince Charming and Snow White together again, because as we said so many times before, we were sick of the Mary Margaret and David story, but we love the Charming and Snow story. And I think their characters are going to be a lot better now. Oh, yeah. Now that they have that behind them. I would have liked to see August transforming back into a person if yeah. that indeed is going to happen and him not remaining a wooden man. And I really wanted to see Jefferson reuniting with his daughter, but there will be plenty of time for that next season. And I think we will get some of those scenes in the premiere in the fall. I also half expected Storybrooke would transform back into the fairy tale land, but it seems like everyone will be stuck in our world. And actually, I like that better. Yeah, me too. That's going to be a lot of fun. Now, Mr. Gold brought magic into the real world, but did he do it in hopes of finding his long-lost son or for power and return to being the Dark One? More than likely, it is the latter, but because Robert Carlyle plays Rumpelstiltskin so well that we're never quite sure whether he is beyond redemption or we should hold out hope, I'm still really excited and think that there could be a possibility that he's doing it to find his son. Could he even become the big bad for next season? That's another option. That would certainly be a fun twist as well. Well, they're, they're doing a good job of leaving us on the fence with both him and Regina. Yeah. Regardless, the world has been reset, and yeah. I can't wait to see how the rules will change now that the curse is broken. People should be free to leave Storybrooke, but will they be able to take magic with them? Or when they, as you and I sort of mentioned early, when they leave Storybrooke, do they lose that magic and it only comes back when they return? Will the residents do all they can to take down Regina? I think so. Will Mr. Gold lose himself as Rumpelstiltskin? And if he does, will Belle still love him? I don't know. Will Sheriff Graham come back to life? That'd be cool, because I really like that character. That was awesome how he came back in the beginning of the episode. Well, yeah, I mean, when we were back in the the fairy tale world, yeah, that was really cool. They did that just for the fans. And thanks to the strong note this season has ended on, I am definitely looking forward to season two. Yeah, it's it's a bummer that we have to wait all summer, because this show's finally kicking into the high gear that we've wanted it to. And I think second season is going to be outstanding. I agree. I think there's going to be a lot to come out of this show. Now that I think ABC has faith in it, and it's, I think, a good call to put their money behind it, I think we're in for some really great stuff to come. I think that they're centering their Sunday night lineup come this fall on this show being a success. So I just can't wait to see what they threw at us. Because when ABC decided to put all their eggs behind Castle, we really got some great stuff out of this show that I'm hoping Once Upon a Time can do the same. Because um, the fantasy thing seems to be big right now. And it seems to be very successful. And Disney is the master with this kind of stuff. So it's fun to see them try to take a model that they've relied on for years and beef it up and make it a little more interesting for us live-action drama fans. Yep. So just a lot of stuff to be excited about. Can't wait for their Comic-Con panel. Can't wait to see the ideas that they throw at us. It's going to be fun because that's the next thing we have to look forward to with that. Yep. So does that pretty much cover Once Upon a Time for you? I think so. Good stuff, yeah. Really well said on your notes there, Nico. Great way to back up what I was saying. So with that, we're going to talk about a show that's been under much scrutiny and controversy here at ATA. There's been some very fierce opinions made on this show, very well-warranted fierce opinions, and all of these things are going to come to a head with this discussion. So let's take it away on if we're going to continue reviewing this show or not as we discuss the Bones seventh season finale, The Past and the Present.
Christopher Palentz's appeal of his verdict goes to trial, and Booth and Brennan do everything they can to keep him behind bars. But a new murder with ties to Palant that the team hopes will put him permanently in prison takes a nasty twist that puts Brennan's freedom in jeopardy. After the complete, utter crap. Yes, Nico, I said it. Complete, utter crap. Bones has been slinging since its return from hiatus. This season finale made solving all the problems that this show was having look easy. Because the writers finally pulled their heads out of the finder that listened to our criticisms. By finally giving us what we called for last week, some drama in the lab. Because all the clues the team at the the Jeffersonian kept finding connected Brennan to the murder of an old friend of hers. Instead of the person who actually killed him. The murderous hacker, Christopher Palatz. And for once, this scenario actually gave Camp something useful to do, as turning over the evidence which convicted Brennan of the murder made her the unsung cure of the episode, according to Caroline, because she allowed the Jeffersonian to stay in the fight against Palat. But with Cam making this decision, I was glad to see that the writers made it a struggle for her emotionally, especially in the scene where she was crying in her office, because for a brief moment, I was able to look past my hostility towards the character for always being a killjoy and sympathize with her on the anguish of doing the right thing that following through with the system that she believes in could potentially break up a family. Again, not all the characters in this episode necessarily understood the hard decision that Cam had to make, because Angela became quite upset with her not turning over the evidence that would convict her closest friend. But that's something Angela would do, as her perspective of the world is based on emotion, and Cam is much more objective, and also, with her formerly being a police officer, she's going to do whatever to uphold the law. By the way, did I just do a psychoanalysis? Got an episode of Bones? It's been so long, I honestly thought I forgot how to do such a thing. In fact, can we even cover a show called Bones over the past couple of weeks? Because this episode we had tonight felt like an entirely different show than what we've had over the past couple of weeks. But all joking aside, or opinions aside, the psychoanalysis isn't going to stop with just Cam and Angela. As Wendell was great in this episode, playing devil's advocate of the possibility that Bones killed her friend. Because that's exactly what Brennan taught him to do. Also, I was so glad to see the lovesick imposter suites we've had this whole season be replaced by the intelligent psychiatrist suites that I've thoroughly enjoyed from earlier seasons of this show. Because he tried to explain to Booth the dangers of trying to point the evidence towards Palat being a killer. As well as later on in the episode, vouching for Bones on not being a murderer, despite knowing that the FBI agent decided to replace Booth was going to kick him off the plot case as soon as he consulted him. Even Brennan's father, who we felt was a completely worthless character in the episode two weeks ago, had an important emotional role to play in this episode, because he was the one who ultimately persuaded Bones to go on the run, when Booth and Caroline thought she should turn herself into the authorities. Again, the only character who was somewhat left out of the much-needed drama for the lab was Hodgins. Things had to go this way, because with Brennan now off the case, he really has the only scientific mind that the Jeffersonian that could contend with Palad's genius. As for Booth, this episode made me proud to say I was a fan of his character again, as he portrayed the blue-collar military man who believes in the system of democracy that America was founded upon, that is willing to do anything to protect the ones he loves, especially his family. Yes, Seeley Booth was a character that we had a great deal of respect for here on ATA, that getting a glimpse of that man one more time is what made the ending of this episode with Bones leaving him behind as she and Christine went on the run just so heart-wrenching. Honestly, as pissed as I've been about Booth's character, 
this season, I really felt sorry for him, like when Brennan turned him down in the 100th episode. Except this time it might be a little worse, so she did the same thing to Booth that she's resented her father for, which was abandoning him. And when Bones comes back, I have a feeling that Booth will be frustrated with her. As we know, the man basically prides himself on being a good father slash family man. And in a way, Brennan took that all away from him. But ultimately, those frustrations will eventually be pointed entirely back towards Pilot. In the end, this season finale for Bones could have been one of the show's best episodes, if it hadn't been marred by all the terrible episodes we've had since the return from Hiatus. Plus, as impressive as all the drama was in this episode, these writers have got to be stupid not to realize that Bones' somewhat investigating Pilot behind Booth's back should have been laid out over the past six episodes. With there being scenes where Brennan was shown going to meet with the mathematician in the mental hospital she was consulting on the case. That Pilat planting the evidence that framed Brennan for murder on this episode. At the same time, the mathematician Bose was consulting with should have totally been Zack. Because Brennan associating with a known felon would have looked just as bad as her consulting with a mental patient. And Pilat killing Zack would have just been a great driving force for the team at the Jeffersonian to bring Pilat to justice. That was worthy of a final season. With that, as we head into season 8, I still support the consensus that it needs to be a 13-episode final season. Because I don't think the writers of Bones could come up with much more than that. But for the seasons to work, consistency is key. Because every one of the 13 episodes needs to build up towards Pilat being brought to justice. And yes, they can bring Brennan back from being on the run, but there needs to be friction between her and Booth over the decision to abandon him. And I don't want to see this show reach the status quo of things are so perfect that we're just going to go through the motions again until maybe the last 10 to 15 minutes of the series finale, where we know Pilat has been arrested or killed, that Bones and Booth are about to get married. So with that, Nico... I'm going to pass things to you with a heavy heart on this episode of Bones. That was really good, but as I said before, marred by six really bad episodes. And on top of that, we got to hear your verdict on if you're going to continue watching this show or not. So with that, I pass things on to you, Nico. Well, this episode was not complete and utter crap, so I'd have to say it was the best episode of the second half of the season. But don't get me wrong, that does not mean I enjoyed it. The return of the hacker plot was good, and his devious plans were worthy of a finale episode. But I hate episodes where they frame one of the main cast, and every show is guilty of doing this, so it's not just Bones. From NCIS, CSI, in all its incarnations, to even Castle did it. But that doesn't mean I have to like them. Was it as good as anything before Season 6? Hell no. Was it okay considering? Yeah, I guess that's about as much praise as I'm going to give it. But it, it was it was good compared to what we've seen the previous six episodes. Right. Did they do a good enough job with the cliffhanger to get me back? Yes and no. While I will watch the first episode next season to see how they get back Bones back in the story and see what has happened during the three-month time jump we will see at the beginning of the season, I'm not sure that I will continue beyond that. For one thing, they will have to do an amazing job of fixing the issues they raised in this episode with Bones taking off and leaving Booth behind. They will have to clean up the major problems we've had with the entire second half of this season and quickly if they want to keep me as a viewer. There are too many interesting new shows coming out next fall for me to continue to watch this crap without some serious overhaul to the cast, writers, or overall story arc. 
At this point, Dan, all I will agree to is to cover the season premiere. But I will not give you a commitment to cover the season at this point because I really I, I can't make it through another yeah. season like this one. One last thing before I sign off on Bones for the season. Cam actually was the best supporting cast member this week because yeah. she did actually have something to do. And she was the only one who did not do what Pellant expected everyone to do. Cover for Bones or get themselves kicked off the case. By doing that, she kept the Jeffersonian on the case and able to help keep the evidence honest and give Bones the best chance of actually proving her innocence. So for not having anything worth doing all season, she finally shined in the finale. I'm still not against her being killed to spice up the story, but at least she was not terrible this episode. And she actually was the best part of this episode. There were parts of this episode that I liked, but there were other things that just really aggravated me. For instance, the... What what's the prosecutor's name? She Caroline. Caroline, yeah. Caroline getting herself kicked off of it. She's she's smarter than that. Yeah. And Booth going nuts. Who doesn't try calling back if they get a, a right. phone call that they don't understand? And didn't think to try calling back multiple times as he's going over. That's just that's a continuity or, you know, logical error in the story. The whole thing was kind of I guess supposed to be playing on your on the emotions of everyone and them doing stupid things because they get too emotional yeah but this group of people at the jeffersonian other than angela are are scientifically Brilliant. based people yeah. they're not ones to usually allow their emotions to affect their judgment and wendell wendell was the second best character oh, yeah. because he actually did exactly what Dr. Brennan taught him to do. What she has always told him to do is follow the evidence completely unbiased. And he did that. And it all pointed towards Bones. And even though they knew that it was a frame job, they needed to continue to follow that evidence because there's been an episode before where it pointed to the wrong person and they followed the evidence to the, lo- to the full logical conclusion and were able to prove that that person was not exactly. the guilty party. So why not do it again this time and rather, right. you know? Well, I, so- I was glad to see they maintained the science in this episode with, with what you just said. I mean, yeah. Wendell and Cam were able to yeah. keep their heads, and and Hodgins too. He he was upset by it, but he was still able to do his job. Whereas Angelo was completely worthless. But I, I mean, I thought that was her character, though. Oh no, no, no! That, yeah. I'm not. That's not. A, that's not a yeah. criticism of her because she is not a scientific person. Right. She is a an artistic, emotional person, and her art is is very emotional. So that made sense for her. But Booth. He's yeah. a well-disciplined military sniper to go all crazy over that. Yes, it's his what or his his lo- the right. love of his life should be his wife, but still, I think he would have done things smarter and well, know I, that know that Pallant is capable of faking that sort of thing. Well, and we've seen him threaten people that wanted to hurt Bones. We have seen him do that, but he's always like just threatened. You know, he's talked it out kind of. Instead of here, he just started punching him. Yeah, and that's evidence of crappy writers. Yeah. Of writers who have lost their edge or have been have replaced good writers. So crap replacing excellence. Yeah. And that's that's my metaphor for the entire season. Season. Well, and this got much more cerebral about the characters. Look, we're debating about the characters' ideas. Be that made it a better episode. But for season eight to work, they've gotta keep doing this. 
You know, we have to debate the characters' decisions. We have to question their actions. They're not questioning them doing something stupid. We have to look at the, what happened with Wendell in this episode. What happened with Cam? Those decisions. Yeah. You know, or Angela, the hurt being emotional. That's the type of character. If you want someone to do emotional things, have the character that's designed to do that. Do that. Don't try to make somebody else emotional. That's yeah, the main I, thing. Now, I know that they're not going to wrap up the plot story arc in, in the f- premiere, but I do, if if Bones is still on the run by the end of the episode, I'm done. Yeah. I, I'm going to put that out there because that means this show has completely changed its its Goal. format. It's completely, yep. you know. It's done. It's done. It, it's yeah. looking, it's grasping at straws to keep you interested. And that's not going to work for me. This is what I'm going to do with this show. Honestly, I'm going to keep watching it. Covering it on ATA, I think we should give it that first episode. Then they go from there. Agreed. I, I think that's the the way to do it. Because, like, if it's, if it's crap, at least I can see how it played out, you know? I am yeah. curious. But I, I'm not going to take the effort, the time and effort to work and analyze, then write about it and whatnot. Yeah, I'll probably do the same, but I don't want to talk about it if it's if it's just right. utter crap. Right, exactly. And, again, you know, you guys feel free... If you still want to express your opinions about the show, feel free. Pop us an email. Give us some examples why we should stick around to watch it. Maybe we'll do an episode where we discuss these things. Uh, something like that, you know? This is our opinion. We don't want to do this anymore. You have the freedom to watch whatever you want on TV. We don't control your remote. We're just talking about things that we're enthusiastic about and driven to write about. Then if we're not enthusiastic about something, the material is not going to be as good. So that's why we're making this call is we just don't feel motivated to work on it and we don't think we can give you our best show by continuing to discuss it. I mean, do you agree with that, Nico? No, I'm always, every person has their own likes and dislikes and they need to make up their own mind. I'm just telling you why I'm frustrated with this show. I once loved Bones. I couldn't wait until it was on, but it just is not the same show for me anymore. Everybody's, you know, got their own reason for watching a different show. I'm going to fill that time slot with something else and watch Bones when I get a chance. But if you still want to watch it, watch it. Yeah. My mom still wants to watch it. Again, I'm not seeing it as bad as you are, but I don't think I wasn't as in love with the show as you are. You know, this is something that was, I mean, this was one of your favorite shows at one point in time. Right. And so I, I could see where it's, it hurts. That's, that's the main thing with you. That I feel bad that's happened with you with this show, but hopefully something can fill the void for you. So with that, you ready to move on? I am. All right. Well, let's talk about a sitcom that's in pretty good shape. Again, this was the penultimate episode. There's one more, which we will cover at a later date. Let's talk about the Modern Family episode. Danico, why don't you say the name? Because I'm worried I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> Tableau Vivant. All right. Take it away with the summary. While ordering lunch at a local eatery, Gloria and Jay get into an argument. Claire and Cam have opposing views on how to punish children. Luke mistakenly accepts an award he doesn't really deserve. My modern family memory for this week would have to be the way Gloria described her dislike of the sandwich named after Jay, saying it tastes like a... It's like a fish and a turkey beat themselves to death with a pepper. The way Gloria's accent emphasized this line made it absolutely hilarious in my opinion. That gave my family a soundbite that we wanted to play over and over again because my dad would laugh every time. Also, I thought Claire teasing Cam with the notion that Lily was going to turn on the garbage disposal with his finger inside of it was quite intense for a comedy show. Got a really sinister thing to do to a person. I mean, I kind of have a fear of this, so it really gave me the willies. 
And maybe I'm just feeling this way because I watched too much Supernatural where they actually did saw a person's arm off with a garbage disposal episode. Yeah. One of the scenes that probably freaked me out the most on that show. So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with your modern family memory for this week. They gave awards for starting fires. I'd be getting one of those too. With lines like that, you can see why I love Luke on this show. His role was somewhat diminished this week, but still made me laugh a number of times. And the entire idea of a living portrait, which is what the title of this episode means, as a high school project is ridiculous that the teacher (laughs) would grade you down on your family's actions and not on your work towards accuracy or authenticity is why I hated art classes in high school because (laughs) the teachers had no grasp in reality. Yeah, I'm a little bit bitter that one of my few non-A's in high school was a mandatory art class. Stupid art teachers. Yes. I knew you were going to say Luke. I knew as soon as that scene happened where he was like, I smell fire, I'm like, Nico's going to love that scene. <laughs> it was good. And, it and was Manny, great. Manny and him interacting again in a fun way was, was good. We've missed that in the last couple weeks. We haven't seen Manny and Luke together. Yeah, it's a great pair. A lot of fun. A lot of comedic gold out of those two. And I think we're going to get more as the two actors get older. Uh, yes. I think that's going to be really fun to see what goes on between those two. So I guess that pretty much covers that. Now it's time to move on to a much larger section for community than we normally have. Uh, we've got three whopping episodes here. So what we're going to do with this is we're just going to start with the first episode, give the title, give the summary, give our community chuckle for that episode, and then keep moving on to the next two episodes. So that's how we're going to do things. We're just going to do each episode in its own separate section. So let's take it away with our discussion on the first community episode, entitled Digital Estate Planning. The gang has to help Pierce win a video game so that he can claim his father's inheritance. With the first community episode, I have to say that I love the idea of the video game sequences being animated in 16-bit graphics because it totally made me want to get out my Super Nintendo and play it again. However, in narrowing this great concept down into a community chuckle, I would have to go with Ahmed falling in love with the, the blacksmith's daughter Hilda inside the video game, and them spawning Ahmed babies, which was something Troy oddly wanted to do with his roommate. Also, I felt that this plotline for Ahmed ended on a very satisfying note, as he put Hilda on a flash drive to take her with him out of the game. So with that, Nico, what was your community chuckle on this first episode? I love this episode of Community. Yeah, it really captured the mastery of the original paintball episode, the winter animation episode, and now we can add the 8-bit video game episode to that pantheon of excellent episodes. I'm scared to death now that Dan Harmon is out as showrunner that we will no longer get amazing episodes that stretch the imagination and completely sit the genre on its head. Don't be fooled by media releases by MDC or Sony Pictures that Dan Harmon will remain as a consulting producer like I originally heard and reported earlier this week. It came straight from Harmon's mouth that he had been fired without consultation. And while he can sit there on set and pretend to participate, he has no power to write, rewrite, or make changes to the show. So he has essentially been fired, but allowed to stay and watch as they change his show. A cruel form of torture, if you ask me. I yeah. think he'll, I mean, he will be missed by me, but hopefully the show can retain its feel and remain the show we love and not become a studio hack job like many of the shows we see on TV today. Like uh, Breaking In? Yeah. 
And that's why Community stood out. Dan yeah. Harmon was the inspiration behind this show. He didn't write every single episode, but he put his hand in every single one. He was a very hands-on producer creator. Yeah. So the loss of him is going to change this show, but if it's going to be a massive change or a slight change, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm still very excited for next one, yeah. but definitely the entire idea of the 8-bit video game was what my essentially my community chuckle for this week. So, love the episode. Unfortunately, it came out about the same time that we found out Dan Harmon was leaving the show, <laughs> you know. Yeah, now let me ask you this. Is that mean that the network is going to be essentially show running the show now no they're bringing in two guys who are are well known I, I forget their names at the moment but sony pictures is bringing them in to run because sony pictures is actually the studio behind it okay but well, that makes me feel better that's not network at least it's actual writers um, yeah it's gonna be a new a new creative team but i think they're gonna i think if they're smart they're gonna keep Harmon on in more of a role than he has been told yeah, I, I I certainly hope so, and you know I really hope that Joe McHale can back them up because he's you know a really funny guy with what he's done with the soup and whatnot. So I hope that his presence can help maintain a, you know what we're used to with the show, and I hope things work a little better with Chevy Chase this coming year, and everyone works together a little bit yeah. better. Yeah, there hasn't been any word on whether or not Chevy will stay now that Harmon's out, but I think it's going to be a lot easier for him to stay. Especially when there's an opportunity for possibly more input on his part. Right, exactly. And that might have been why things were done the way that they were done, even though that was unfortunate for Dan Harmon. So with that, we'll take it away with, I guess, the finale of the Dan Harmon era of community with our discussion on the episode, The First Chang Dynasty. The study group plans to rescue Dean Pelton with an elaborate heist during Chang's birthday party. Even though the first community episode of the night was highly amusing, I was left a little confused as to why it did not connect to the recent ongoing story arc of the study group being expelled from Creedale. I honestly thought that maybe the video game episode should have aired before everything went down with Starburn's death and the study group getting kicked out of school. But I felt this episode somewhat alleviated that problem by turning into a heist episode that, as the summary said, was all about saving Dean Pelton and bringing the school back to normal. On that note, my community chuckle for this episode was Pierce's attempts to get in got Operation Overthrow Chegg by dressing up as a swabby, and how that was used to create the failure to distract Chegg from the study group acting out the real successful plan, which, unlike in Ocean's Eleven, was also a failure. At the same time as this failure went down, I thought it was hilarious that Pierce did not recognize Shirley until she took off her fake beard. Also, from a storytelling standpoint, they could have seen this episode just acting as the season finale, leaving us on the cliffhanger of Troy going to join the air conditioning repair school. But I think the show gave us the next episode under the pretense that they were going to get canceled. Or now, for I guess what is the case now, Dan Harmon, it was to give Dan Harmon the opportunity to have one last big writing send-off, as he is most certainly now going to leave his role as community showrunner. Or at least his role is going to be diminished. So with that, Nico, what was your community chuckle odd? The battle for Green Dallas, we'll call it. Yeah, another solid episode of Community that finally pushed the Chang story arc to its illogical conclusion, which almost ended in a lightsaber slash stun gun duel with Jeff and Chang, but we didn't quite get that awesomeness. 
this episode was just bonkers crazy. Yeah. And that is just how I like my Chang episodes on Community. It was, for the most part, a homage to heist movies like Ocean's Eleven, but it reached new levels of hilarious absurdity, one of Community's greatest strengths and reasons I love this show. I, I know most viewers have questioned the Chang storyline this season, but in order to make it work, Community needed to go balls out and make its ridiculousness so ridiculous that we had no choice but to become willing captives in a world where an Asian security guard took over a community college by kidnapping its dean and replacing him with a denal changer, doppeldiener, Diener Changer. Wow, that's glad. I'm impressed you kept that all straight. <laughs> that is why the entire Chang security takeover was my community chuckle for this episode. Can I just say I love Ked Jiang? He oh, is so yeah. hilarious. And I love that they kept his his story going potentially. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Yes, I love that too. I mean, you can't have community without Chang. Come on. I thought, I thought, oh no, what are they going to do now? Yeah. But they kept it going, so that's good. Yes, yes. I think this was Dan Harmon's way of almost forcing them to have to cover plot lines that he wanted to do, but we'll get to that in a minute. So let's talk about the Community episode, the finale, which I thought really had a great name, Introduction to Finality. Shirley and Pierce's sandwich shop is chosen to replace the campus subway, but a conflict ensues between the partners, and Jeff has to argue on Shirley's behalf in Dean Pelton's version of court. Meanwhile, Troy is recruited by the air conditioning repair annex. I guess with Dan Harmon leaving, this episode felt like almost a cross between a season premiere and a season finale, because it started out in the fall of the next school year, but yet put an awful lot at stake for almost all of the characters as it tackled Shirley and Pierce's aspirations to have a sandwich shop, Jeff getting his lawyer job back, Ovid facing the threat of being consumed by his imagination, and Troy accepting his place as the ultimate air conditioning repairman, while still winning over British heart. Again, I don't know why you would want to do that, but that's what Troy wants to do, and again, with all these big character developments going on, I didn't really have a community chuckle, a.k.a. favorite comedic moment from this episode. I just more or less had a favorite moment which was the Ahmed from the alternate reality being turned from his evil ways by Jeff's closing statements in the trial between Shirley and Pierce. Because I thought that it really captured the reason why some of us avid TV watchers are still fiercely loyal to this show, despite low ratings, as well as the negative opinions of NBC critics and apparently Chevy Chase. And I'm kind of going to amend that statement a little bit by saying this was really Dan Harmon's last chance to get on his soapbox and kind of somewhat call NBC out for the treatment of him and diminishing his role. Yeah, this was his last chance to get his two cents in. Almost like kind of that final speech that Conan gave when he was somewhat railroaded out of NBC with his Tonight Show gig. And I felt this was Dan Harmon's chance to do the same thing. And he thought he did it really well in a tactful way. So credit to Dan Harmon on that, and you've got my respect, man. On that note of community continuing to keep on trucking for its fans, despite some changes in the writing staff come next season, it did a nice job of getting us excited for next season with presenting us a montage of what's to come, including the shocking revelation that Starbirds faked his death. Ahmed is still facing the threat of being consumed by his imagination, even though the study group believes he tore the Imaginarium down. And we also have the threat of Chang possibly teaming up with the City Planning Commission to tear Greendale down, giving us the real epic battle for Greendale. 
instead of an episode that left me somewhat wanting more. And also, I think this episode, this epic battle for Greendale that may occur at the end of next season, may make a great series finale as well. If NBC wants to go there, then that seems like the case. But with new writers coming in, they may want to continue the series, depending on their success. So with that, Nico, I'm going to pass things out to you with your community chuckle on the final Dan Harmon episode of Community. If this episode had been the series finale, would anyone have been disappointed? I mean, in the context that it's being a final episode and not in the sense that there's no more community coming, that would suck regardless. What made this episode work particularly well is that the gang was completely broken up with each character sort of lost in his or her own way. Pierce and Shirley were at odds. They were fighting over the sandwich shop. Jeff just wanted to study and ended up battling his old nemesis. Troy was struggling with the air conditioning school. Abed had checked out from reality as a result of Troy's absence. And Britta was crushed by Abed's mind games. And then we got in what was one of Community's greatest moments ever, Jeff's speech at the end of this episode about helping others and propping up those in need. This is what Community is all about. And my Community chuckle for this great season finale, Jeff's speech was was it it wasn't really a funny moment but it was what made all the funny moments in this episode work so i gotta say watching all three episodes of this amazing series back to back was awesome and really i think this is the way this show needs to be viewed especially if you're going to go back and rewatch this amazing series yeah watch multiple episodes in a row because it was just amazing 90 minutes of laughing. Well, we thought it was going to be long and monotonous to kind of a mind explosion, but it worked really well. I was surprised. I enjoyed every minute of it. I don't think they could have picked three better episodes to show in a row because they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily a continuation of every story. The 8-bit video game episode really stood off on its own and kicked the night off in a great way. I loved that episode. It was my favorite of the three. And then the one in the middle really closed out the Chang story. So we got a conclusion to the entire season-long story arc. And then the final one really wrapped up everything else that we had seen over the last three years and brought it all into a neat bundle. And really, Jeff got his winning moment when he realized that his time here at Greendale has not been a waste. It was not just him getting a real bachelor's to replace the one he faked. You know, it it really it was him he becoming got a his better moment. person. Yes, exactly. Shirley, she didn't really change much, but I'd say she changed the group or influenced the group more than changed the group. Yeah. And and especially on Jeff. Pierce realized that money and power is not everything and that if he really wants to be accepted, he has to be a friend first and a businessman or at least when it comes to his friends. And so, and then Abed realized that he can't just escape into his imagination, even though he did still keep the Imaginarium in that right. little box. And, and really, Troy realized he could stand up for what he believes in. Yeah. Britta, I don't really know what her moment was. And Annie was kind of lost in that last series. But I think everybody had a growing moment, and I just didn't pick out Britta or Annie's. Well, I, Annie, I think... Because had a positive influence on Jeff as well. Oh, absolutely. We've had yeah. those scenes, and it didn't make this episode, but she's influenced him positively as well. Yeah. They're just really great episodes. I'm glad you know, we really got to take the time and talk about them. I wanted to spend time on them, because they were just really well-written, and the character development on this show is great. 
Absolutely. It's, you know, a lot of sitcoms don't do that, but the character development here is worthy of a hour-long drama almost. And they cover as much stuff with characters, I think, in a half an hour as those shows do within the 45 minutes or whatever they have. So, great job on that. And, you know, it's really sad to see Dan Harmon go, but I just hope it's for the best of the show because I like the other people that are part of it. Yep. So with that, I think it's time to move on to a show that I think really emphasized the concept of a season finale. I think it was everything that we wanted it to be and more, and it was just explosive and action-packed, just like this show should be. And I think it capped off everything really well. So let's talk about the person of interest episode that had me really pumped up after it was over, Firewall. The FBI closes in on Reese, who is trying to protect a psychologist from one of her patients. Meanwhile, Finch receives a visit from an old friend. When it comes to a season finale, especially for an action show, come under the strong philosophy that they've got to end the season with a bang. The person of interest did just that, did both a storytelling and a physical sense, because all of the enemies Reese has accumulated so far descended upon him in one big final showdown, as he tried to protect a psychologist, played by Amy Acker, who Nico loves, from one of her patients. Again, this episode did start out kind of slow, as person of interest always seems to. Because we had to find out information about the psychologist and be introduced to the heads of HR. Honestly, even though all of this became very important at the end of the episode, in the beginning it felt trivial or almost boring. But the writers did a nice job of pulling us over until the points where revealing information would be the most shocking from a season finale standpoint by giving us that highly intense teaser where Finch calls Carter to help Reese just as the FBI shows up to say they finally tracked him down and also this episode brought back a familiar face, as in Zoe the Fixer from a few episodes ago. In my opinion, I originally thought that bringing Zoe back on top of recent Finch having to contend with the FBI, HR, and the woman who discovered Finch created the machine was just going to be too much for this episode. But actually, Zoe helped the episode because she did all the investigating needed to push the story forward, while all of the action stayed focused on the main cast to ensure that we got a climactic finale worthy of this excellent first season. Also, with Zoe taking care of the outside of the law investigating, Reese and Finch were able to stay in constant contact with each other, which I felt was necessary in re-emphasizing the sense of trust between the two men that made the way this show left things for the summer such a success. However, before we get into the ending of this episode, we have to talk about all the great action that led up to it, centering on Reese and the psychiatrist being trapped in a hotel because the FBI and HR descended upon them while Finch was being stalked by the woman who knows about the machine. With that being said, I know full well that Person of Interest has done this Reese cornered in a building scenario before, but this was done so much more epic in a way that just simply made the time fly by as we had the three forces descend upon our hero. Plus, the intensity that was added to this episode by cutting back and forth between Carter, Fusco, Finch, and Zoe, because they all raced to help Reese escape the hotel with the psychiatrist by communicating somewhat indirectly, left me on the edge of my seat. And while I was getting my degree in screenwriting, I was taught one of the worst things you could do in a script was convey dialogue through text messages. But the text communications between Carter and Reese worked really well here, as she guided him away from the FBI SWAT teams while making his way to the bottom of the hotel. 
from my standpoint, after seeing all the movies they've worked on to the first season of this show, if your name is Nolan, you've got the hand of Midas when it comes to screenwriting. Because every script they've put their hands on turns to gold, even if it does use something like text messages for dialogue. On top of that, I think what got me really fired up about Reese and Carter working together, even if it was through text, got to be the impressive balancing act Carter pulled by distracting the FBI, leading Reese out of the hotel, then uncovering the identity of the mole, who she originally thought to be Fusco. Guys, for the moment that we knew was coming where Fusco and Carter discovered they were both working for Reese, it was exactly what it needs to be. With Fusco openly admitting to Carter that he is seeking redemption, and Carter being upset that Reese left her in the dark again. But at the same time, she was glad to know that she could for sure trust Fusco. Although, just because Carter and Fusco saved Reese from HR, knowing it was for the greater good, and had that chat while he was sitting in the backseat of the car, I don't think next season is going to begin without Carter still being a little upset with Reese about not telling her Fusco was his asset. And she may want Reese to owe her a favor when he enlists her help to find Finch next season. Speaking of the scene where Reese was sitting in the back seat of Carter's car, the way Jim Caviezel played off pressing the detonator trigger that blew up the HR member's car was incredibly cool and badass to the point that if someone asked me who the character of Jack Bauer was, I would say I've never heard of him. Really, when it comes down to it, John Reese has been developed into this iconic action hero that has the potential to make us one day say, Walker, Texas who? Steve McSomebody? Maybe even, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Dean Watchester? Then again, a lot of the credit also needs to go to Finch, as Reese said it himself. He never stops impressing him. And believe me, Finch was impressive in this episode, as he screwed up all of HR and the FBI's communication to give Reese an escape route. But unfortunately, that did not prevent Harold from escaping an encounter with the woman who discovered he created the machine, named Alicia, through reveals that she hasn't been running from the machine, but somewhat. And who is that someone? Well, it's none other than the psychiatrist played by Amy Acker, who is actually Root, giving Nico a punch in the gut. And Root, if you remember, is the computer hacker mastermind who gave Reese and Fidge a run for their money as they prevented an innocent man from taking the rap on the assassination of a senator. Now, normally it's a rule of thumb for a magician not to pull the same trick twice, but they've never met Jonathan Nolan, who has caught me twice falling hook, line, and sinker for an actor who played a character that represented the epitome of good on another show to play the same type of character on a person of interest, and then turn out to shockingly be the bad guy. First, Enrico Colantoni played the ideal father, a blue-collar lawman, Keith Mars, and Veronica Mars, to turn out to be the control-obsessed mob boss, Elias, here on Person of Interest. And now Amy Acker, who played sweet and innocent Fred, an angel, turned out to be the crazed computer hacker, Root. I personally thought the psychiatrist was going to be a love interest for Reese, but her being Root is much crazier, especially if it allows Amy Acker to really expand her talents as an actress by being the villain on such a well-written show. Finally, Root taking Fitch hostage left Reese in a position where he had to turn to a likely source for help, the machine. And basically the machine gives this help to Reese because since Finch trusts Reese so much, I guess the machine does now too. And with this ending, I'm curious how much of an artificial intelligence the machine really is. I mean, I thought the only way you can interact with it was using a password and code. But here, Reese just talked to the machine, almost like it was a Terminator or Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And after the actions he has performed all season, it seems to trust him enough to provide assistance. But can this machine talk back to Reese? 
Also, after Risa the machine team up, I'm wondering if the machine is going to decide that it would be more effective or efficient by cutting out the middleman, as in eliminating Finch like his former partner. Again, based on what Alicia was saying before being killed by Root, it is unclear if the machine killed Finch's former partner or if it was somebody working above Root, meaning that this theory might not pan out. But it's still something fun to speculate, as I think we're going to find out much more about how the machine works as we head into next season. So with that, Nico, what was your thought on this spectacular season finale that I thought totally made worth watching this first season worthwhile? This may have been the best hour of television I watched this season, other than maybe Game of Thrones. This episode was for sure the best episode all year on network television and was practically perfect in every way. Firewall was just about perfect in every sense, inundating us with babes, suspense, gunfights, twists, and so many great one-liners from Reese. All the things we love about Person of Interest. Everyone else take note, Firewall was excellent. And it was exactly what a series finale is supposed to be. And what I especially loved about this finale was that it was all done in the context of being a normal episode. Yes. There was no big to do about the finale being a special episode or steering away from the normal formula like other series tend to do when there's so much left to wrap up. This finale was just a very, very, very good episode of Person of Interest that started out like every other episode, with Reese and Finch getting a new number. And really, that's what the finale should be, is just a really good episode. I, I, that's totally what I think. And unfortunately, so many series put so much emphasis in the finale being something completely different or bigger than itself that they lose sight of their normal show. And a lot of times, finales suffer for that. Yeah. Amy Acker was amazing as Root, which took me a while to piece together, but I'm happy to say that I figured it out before she shot the NSA lady, but not until she took her sweet-ass time getting to the car, and I realized something was up with her. Though I did question how she could rewire the elevator as a mere psychiatrist, but that was not enough to put me over to her as Root. When I look back on the episode, however, I realized that... Something I just noted at the beginning of the episode should have given me an insight into the twist at the end of Acker being Root, and that was her name as the psychologist Carolyn Turing. Alan Turing was a brilliant mathematician and computer scientist that created the Turing machine, which played a significant role in the development of the modern computer, and he was instrumental in breaking the Nazi codes in World War II for the British. He is also famous for creating the Turing test, which is the test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior. The name Turing is the perfect cover for a hacker like Rook to assume. I commented on her name Turing when they said it, but I assumed it was just a coincidence. Mm. This big twist was very reminiscent of the time Reese was unknowingly protecting Elias. And as I've already said, even though I should have known better, I fell for it. Ruth, get this. She put a hit on herself in order to draw out Reese and more specifically get to Finch. That's hardcore, and I think I fell in love with Amy Acker all over again because of it. She wants in on the machine, and now she has the only person in the world who knows how to get in. And not only did we get this awesome twist at the end with Amy Acker being Root and kidnapping Finch, but we saw Fusco and Carter find out about each other. Both helped Reese escape from when they were trapped in the hotel. Which was an awesome entrance, by the way. Yeah, and we saw Fusco take down HR. Yeah. 
the one and a half men operation that we've come to love became a full-fledged team effort. And something about it felt so right. This was a team crafted over 20-something episodes with, with a lot of patience. And it paid off. It wasn't like they all of a sudden came together. It took oh. 20 episodes to put all the things in motion. And eventually they came together to work out perfectly. And with Carter, Fusco, and Finch helping Reese, the feds using all available means to track Reese, and HR using their man on the inside of the FBI task force, it became a game of cat and mouse and whatever eats a cat as Reese ducked into corners and got ambushed in elevators. Not a single shot was fired in this scene, but it was as thrilling a sequence as any person of interest has offered us so far. And that was awesome. And speaking of Finch being kidnapped, now that he will be missing for a few episodes, I think this will be the way next season kicks off with more hands-on full-team efforts to track down Root and rescue Finch in the process. They will still have to help the new numbers that keep showing up, but they will also be focused on saving Finch as well. I'd hate to not see Michael Emerson for much of next season or for him to have a diminished role in season two. So I do hope they resolve this issue early next season, but I could see it running all the way to the mid-season finale. Regardless of how they go forward, all I know for sure is that the machine is working with Reese now as we got that great final scene where he told it that Harold was in trouble and they had to work together to get him back. Great scene, great finale. Well, it just was, it was such a, it was so satisfying. You know, you thought Root had the upper hand because they were all screwed, you know. And then Reese just comes up to the machine and goes, you need to help him. You need to help me fix this. And it let him right in. And that was awesome. You know, and I thought fit his character perfectly because you can't get the drop on the guy. He's going to do whatever is necessary to get what he wants accomplished. And even that, he's, I don't want to say he's outdone the machine, but he's won the machine's trust. That that takes a lot of effort to do that. Yeah. Now, you made a a theory that Root might be working with the people from the NSA or or the people who know about the machine. And I think she's an independent contractor. I think she's in it for herself. Because I thought, wasn't she talking to someone from the government in that episode where she was involved with the political assassination? She might be working with other people, but I don't know that she's working direct. I think she's like an independent contractor that maybe they've brought in to help them. That's what I think it is. Okay, but I I think she's out for it herself. I think she is her own boss because most hackers do not, especially not in 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 TV shows. But they're in it for themselves. Anonymous is is really the only time I've heard of a concerted effort of multiple hackers coming together and really being successful and working together. Mostly hackers are are solo people or they work with criminal organizations, but they run their own their own aspect of it. Well, could so, it be like that? Like it's gets people with the government or corrupt people with the government and she runs her own aspect of that or they've hired her? I think that is a possibility that she's been hired by one of the high up people right. who is who knows about the machine. Probably that guy who was the head of the NSA right. and now seems to be either a senator or a maybe high up cabinet position. Yeah, because I, I could see her handing, almost handing Finch over to somebody. We're thinking about it, you know, and that's the plot line with Finch is that you know, he's handed over to these guys and they're chasing after him for a while. And I think wherever he's being held, I think we'll have scenes with him wherever he's being held and what's going on with that. 
Oh, absolutely. And we may even that's have why, some of him trying to escape. Yeah, that's why I said I think it's going to be, a, a, unfortunately, a diminished role because we will see yeah. him in, in his setting of being held, but he's not going to be yeah. in virtually every third scene or every other scene like he right. is in a normal episode. And that's unfortunate because he, I do love Michael Emerson. Well, the way this show moves, I could see them resolving that in the first three to six episodes. And maybe even the first episode. Yeah. I mean, they get him back, but they don't capture Root. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guarantee you that. It's not over for Root from... It's not over with Root probably for a while. I think Amy Acker is here on the long haul as a villain. Yeah, I think she'll be like Elias, where not in a lot of episodes, but always in the background and always in our, our, our thoughts of how is she related to this? Is this something that she's behind? And that's well, going to be cool. Right, and well, we still have Elias's man out there mm-hmm. working for him. We have Root, and we still have Reese's old partner. They even have it. They haven't even touched that yet. Right. So there's a lot of stuff they can go through and be excited for, and plenty of villains and plenty of stuff just to keep this story going and just to keep this show excellent. And I just got to say, kudos to them on the first season. You know, we had that problem with Carter early on, but once they got that fleshed out, this show has been rock solid ever since. Oh, absolutely. And that's really impressive for a first season to barely have any problems. I mean, Once Upon a Time had a great first season. Don't get me wrong. And I know that's the number one drama. And, and it should be from effects standpoints and the visuals and stuff. But in terms of the story, this show has the best one out of the new network television shows. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I, I'll give it that. But again, this finale, this was really great. Might be the best one, but I have a hard time saying that because Castle was very good, and so was Fringe. Yeah, they were, but I thought this was the best hour of television I've seen. Okay. I, I have a hard time saying it over Fringe because that was really great, too. Oh, I loved Fringe. Fringe was great, too, but I, I enjoyed this one more, I think. Okay. Okay. I, I, legit opinion. And with that, I think it's time to talk about a show that basically showed us kind of what not to do with a season finale. But I think with that statement, next season it could work itself out. At least I'm hoping so. I'm being optimistic. So we're just going to go with that and we'll see what Nico has to say about it after I'm done talking about the Supernatural episode, Survival of the Fittest. The Winchesters and their allies, including Bobby, Castiel, Meg, and the Prophet Kevin, must try and stop Dick Roman and his Leviathans in a final showdown. In my opinion, the season finale of Supernatural was flat-out disappointing, but not in the same way as the Bones finale, because I have every intention of coming back next season and still want to cover the show here on ATA. I just thought that with this, I just thought that with this episode, the big final showdown between the Winchesters was really anticlimactic because it didn't contain the action-packed bang that made the Person of Interest finale or finales from earlier seasons of this show so great. The main issue here was the script because it contained way too much talking and not enough action. We were revealed what Dick Roman's master plan was last week, so this week should have been all about Sam and Dean killing them some Leviathan, instead of messing around with stupid stuff like Cass attempting to play Twister and Meg's character as a whole. I mean, couldn't the Leviathans or Crowley in this episode just kill her off? Now, the talking seeds did have their strong points, such as Sam and Dean having to say goodbye to Bobby, but almost killing Sam made him realize that it was best to burn the flask, and this inspiring Cass to join the fight with the Leviathans. 
On that note, I totally get that Cass needed to see Dean lose someone he cared about because it means of the angel understanding why he needed to seek redemption for hurting his friend. And to set up the strong scene where Dean forgave Cass. But couldn't it have been done in a way where Bobby at least played some part in the demise of Dick Roman in retribution for killing him? Thankfully, even though this episode was extremely disappointing from a Bobby standpoint, I think the forgiveness scene between Dean and Cass can set the wheels in motion for the old Cass to return next season, at least in terms of seriousness. As for the demise of Dick Roman, it started out like it was going to be awesome, with the epic return of the Impala set to the classic tune, Born to be Wild. But when the car crashed through the Sucro Corp sign, Sam and Dean should have stepped out of it, because they have been known to go in guns blazing against the bad guys in the past. Think season 3 finale when they sang Dead or Alive to go confront Lilith. Then for the actual deed of killing Dick Roman, it seemed way too easy for Dean, and almost kind of like what happened with Eve last season. And it did not feel like it contained the necessary amount of payback to avenge Bobby. However, I guess that somewhat depends on if Dean killed the right dick, because it could have been one of the decoys set up to trap Dean and Cass in purgatory. Or maybe the real Dick Roman is now back in purgatory after being stabbed with the bone by Dean, and he ends up escaping next season when Dean gets out of purgatory at the beginning of next season. From my standpoint, I like the idea of Dean being trapped in purgatory because it might be an opportunity to bring back past supernatural threats that the Winchesters have sent there, especially if season 8 is this show's final season, which is something that Nico and I somewhat expect, but we'll see with new showrunners coming in. Plus, according to Supernatural, all the ghosts who end up getting the object they possessed or bones burned end up in purgatory meaning that there's still a chance for Bobby to come back and get that proper send-off, which I think is him going to heaven. Although I think the most interesting character for us to catch up with at the beginning of next season is going to be Sam, because the last time he was on his own, Ruby turned him towards causing the apocalypse. And I'm wondering where he's going to end up this time around. Is it possible that he will be continuing the good fight with Kevin Tran as a hunter in training, since he and Sam are so similar? I guess with that, we're just going to have to wait and see. Finally, despite the major issues I had with this finale, in terms of it being very anticlimactic, I look to the next season of Supernatural with optimism. As Sarah Gamble, the person who wrote this episode, that caused most of the show's problems, is stepping down as showrunner. They got the CW or Eric Kripke will probably never reveal if the dumb decision for Sam to go without a soul for half of season six or this crappy season finale, or the way she handled the Leviathan story, is why she stepped away from her position, or was asked to step down. But hopefully with Benny Lund staying on board, which I think is going to happen, and the new showrunners coming in from Sci-Fi's Being Human, which a friend of mine who is a hardcore Supernatural fan says is a quality program worthy of that network's past successes, maybe we can put the problems of the Sarah Gamble era behind us in the Apollos rearview mirror. So with that, I pass things out to you, Nico, with this kind of weak, in my opinion, Supernatural season finale. Yeah, Dan, I had mixed feelings about this finale. It was not as bad as it could have been, but at the same time, it was not the big showdown we were hoping for between Dick Roman and the Winchesters. This finale did seem overly laden with dialogue, which I usually don't mind, but this time it was so lacking in any forward movement of story or action that it felt like the entire episode was dragging. And you mentioned that they spent entirely too much time on Cass, Meg, Crowley, and not nearly enough time on the Dick Roman showdown, and I have to wholeheartedly agree. 
hell, it lasted less than a minute of actual screen time. Jeez. That was the biggest disappointment with this episode. Dick Roman's takedown was almost an afterthought at the end of the episode. And it was disappointing for the actor as well. Oh, yeah. He yeah. had done such a great job building up Dick Roman as this almost bigger-than-life monster, and they took him down with a simple misdirection. It really was It was not big enough for what he deserved. Rather, Sarah Gamble spent the entire episode dicking around with the cast being a pansy ass, Meg being her annoying self, and Crowley double and triple crossing everyone. And really, Bobby's second send-off and Crowley were the only parts of this episode that I really enjoyed. But that was probably because it was more our boy Marque Shepard being awesome than anything the writers really did with him or the Bobby story arc. Yeah. And Bobby's character, I thought he did get a, a pretty good second send off. I know it wasn't probably what you were expecting with him being said to have gone to heaven, but at least it was, you know, was able to not go completely dark. Yeah. And he was able to stop himself. And then he said, Hey, you guys need to take care of this because I am going down a path I cannot come back from. And that I thought was really good. It remained a character. Yes. Yeah. And really, the only thing I'm excited about by the end of this episode is that it appears that Crowley may be the big bad for next season, at least on the Hunters living on Earth side, you know? So that's going to be cool, especially if we can see Mark A. Shepard as a series regular. That would be amazing. Yes. And the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up all all of this for the season, Sarah Gamble stepping down is a good thing. Yes. Yes. But before she stepped down, she decided to go out with one last F you to everyone by splitting up the brothers by sending Dean to purgatory and leaving Sam all alone to clean up all the Leviathans and battle Crowley. This is kind of typical of Sarah Gamble with her obsession with making the brothers suffer. If I didn't know better, and maybe I'm giving her too much of the benefit of the doubt, but I'd say she actually hates Sam and Dean and wants to destroy the show. That, of course, is not really what it is, but the suffering of Sam and Dean was to be her legacy of the show, and she decided to make it super hard on the next guy with this purgatory, sending Dean to, or, yeah, sending Dean to purgatory story. I'm hopeful they can make this work for next year, which I'm actually still excited to watch yeah. next season because Sarah Gamble is out. <laughs> we rag on her a lot, but yes. there's reason that oh yeah season six when she took over was atrocious and season seven was was better but not nearly the step back towards the quality we saw in the first five seasons that we really needed to get this show back on track i'm hoping the new showrunner can get us back to close to that season three season four and even season five level that we are we're looking for in this show and why we still love this show and still watch it every week. I I really think some of these changes might have been the lead actor's call a little bit or they forced it cuz you know Jensen Ackles did it in a very very professional manner that I give him credit for that but he seemed a little pissed about what went down with the Sam not having a soul. And he felt it was hurting his performance a little bit. And I almost got the sense at Comic-Con last year that he apologized a little bit for that. And I think maybe the frustration continued a little bit. And maybe everyone just thought it might be best if we part ways. The other thing is, I think this purgatory situation can be fixed really quick, really easily. 
it, it reminded me a lot of the season five finale of Smallville, where Clark gets trapped in the Phantom Zone. Right. And they resolved that in one episode, no big deal. And things came out of the Phantom Zone. So I think that's what next season is going to be about, is things come out of Purgatory when Dean gets out. Okay, I could see that working. What that is, I don't know what it will be. And again, we could still see Bobby when he's in Purgatory. Because isn't that where the ghosts go? Am I right on that? You know, you, uh, I read that in your side of the thing, and I it, it struck me as not being what I remember, but I also at the same time couldn't say that it was wrong right. or or whether it was right. So I don't know that they really have talked about where the ghosts go. Okay. So it, it's possible. It's definitely possible. I was hoping that this time when Bobby left, it, it. it was it. And, and it, it could was, be. Where he went to, he made his move on to the next thing. Because he told the boys, when it's your time, go. Don't don't right. stick around. Don't do what I did. It's the wrong decision. And I think that sort of showed his, his growth. You know, he wasn't a vengeful spirit when he left. Right. And that, I think, earned him his right to, to a place in heaven. Okay. I, I agree with that. Uh, if Sarah Gamble wasn't leaving, uh, I heard Bobby make that statement. I would have been scared out of my mind. That they were to kill off Sam and Dean. But now she's gone. It should be okay. I, I'm hoping that this everything with this was done for the best. For the show. I think it was. Because the network really needs this show to be good. And Arrow needs this show to be good. To be successful. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, you and I have been talking that maybe next season should be the last regardless. But I heard that there is no plans to do that that they want to milk this for as much as they can get it especially the network because they don't have very many good shows on the network and they're replacing at least two-thirds of their programming for next season well i think they were hopeful that some of the shows like secret circle and ringer were going to take off and they didn't and they they both got canceled again supernatural you know remained the strong flagship show and they still got to go with it yeah, and they ended up renewing a few shows that really never found a, a solid, strong audience. They have a very good cult following, like Heart of Dixie. I've actually watched some of that, and Rachel Bilson's not too bad. She's She actually plays it okay. It's very soap opery and very much designed for a more female audience, but it's a decent show, and it's got some good actors in it, and it's enjoyable. And I, I find myself laughing quite a bit when I do watch a couple episodes. So that one actually got picked up, and I was very surprised. It was on the bubble for most of the season, and it ended up getting picked up because so many other shows just, just were so right. terrible. Yeah, like the L.A. complex disaster. Yeah, I didn't even see any news about it. I think it's still airing. Yeah, it so is. So like, okay. Because they have nothing else to show. Right. The good news is, I mean, they realize that their Smallville market is important, which mm-hmm. is why they're bringing Arrow back and why they're moving Supernatural to Wednesday night. Yeah. So I think they, they think the show still has life in it if they're moving it to Wednesday night. And honestly, that's going against the number one comedy on television. That's That was where Supernatural would be placed. Right. On at the same time as Modern Family. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But it may help Fringe. That is true. So we'll see how this all plays out. I'm happy because I don't have to kill myself on Saturdays to write the scripts for this. Everything is on its own separate day pretty much. So makes my life a lot easier. So I'm excited about that. And with that, you ready to move on to closing? I am indeed. All right. Well, why don't you tell everyone what's coming out the pipe for our podcast? 
Yeah, with the majority of our favorite live-action shows now being wrapped for the summer, we're going to take a two-week hiatus to further develop the Across the Airwaves website and the podcast and plan out our summer programming. But don't worry, Michael and Wu's show, ATA Retro Reviews, will be continuing, as well as Dan and Michael's DC Nation show. So, if you're looking for reviews on Green Lantern, the animated series, and Young Justice, be sure to check out that DC Nation podcast, hosted, as I said, by Dan and Michael, also available on our website and iTunes. Yeah, and those shows go on, I think, for two more weeks, then they're going to be on hiatus. And DC Nation, I think, is going to take a break after that, and we'll come back when new episodes of those shows start airing. Yeah, and speaking of when we come back, we'll be doing our first episode out of the gate. We'll cover the one Modern Family episode left that's airing this week coming up, and we will cover all the Legend of Korra episodes up to this point that we've missed while we were finishing up the rest of our shows in one giant Legend of Korra episode. And I'm hoping that we will get our good friend Joel, who did our previous Avatar The Last Airbender episode, to join us. But for the meantime, you can check out our Retro Reviews podcast, hosted by Michael J. Petty, then Wu Kim, where they cover previously aired episodes of Smallville. They're soon going to be covering previously aired episode of Chuck. Then they've also covered past episodes of Supernatural. So they're going to tackle that. Michael's looking at maybe reformatting some things with the show. So that's his department. He'll keep you updated on that. But be sure to check out the show. It's a lot of fun. Also, you could check out our recently completed Road to the Avengers podcast mini-series that is basically commentaries that Michael and I have recorded on all the films leading up to the release of the Avengers film. So if you went to the Avengers and enjoyed seeing that movie, take a trip back down memory lane, got listen to the commentaries on the movies leading up to that. Also coming soon is going to be our Road to the Dark Knight Rises podcast, and we are going to watch in order to provide you with commentary about all of the Batman films leading up to the Dark Knight Rises, so, so keep an eye out for that. Also, if you like, even though we're on hiatus, you can still talk with us about any of your crackpot theories for the next season of our favorite shows. Summer movies, comics, new shows coming out, whatever you would like, by just basically visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can send an email to acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Also, you can access our Facebook page where we will keep you updated on the release of our podcast episodes. And also, even though we will be on a two-week hiatus, we will still be providing you with Nico's movie and TV news that he finds out during the week on our Facebook, as well as our Twitter page, which is Across Airwaves. There's no the there, it's just Across Airwaves. And our Google Plus pages. You can also, by following us on both Twitter and Google Plus, you can keep updated on our podcast releases and also when our next new episode is coming out, which should be about two to three weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail, which we will play on air or make a part of our next episode. Dad, what number can you call to leave that voicemail? 773-809-3363. And I also, real quick with that voicemail, once again, want to thank Lisa Lee for her question and her voicemail of encouragement. We definitely appreciate that, and we're sorry we couldn't give you the answer you wanted on Awake, but look forward to us covering some new shows in the fall. 
Also, if you'd like, you can access our YouTube channel, which features Nico's News with Nico video podcast, in which he provides you with movie and TV news he finds out through video clips and a blue screen and some cool stuff. Check that out. We also have previews and promos for upcoming Across the Airways events, as well as new TV shows coming out and previews for big-time summer movies, including a new four-minute trailer for The Amazing Spider-Man, which is coming out soon, and I'm very excited about that. Also, if you'd like, you can click the link on the right-hand side of our page to access our Android app, which will allow you to contact our podcast in the variety of ways I just mentioned through your cellular phone. And also, you'll be able to listen to podcasts through your phone. So definitely check out that Android app. It's pretty cool. So once again, for our Retro Reviews hosts, Michael J. Petty and Woo Keb, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reichstick. And until our next podcast, we will catch you on the airwaves. See you, everybody, and I hope you enjoy these finales. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.